<clears throat> this, uh, this evening we are starting a new book, but we are continuing in the same narrative or storyline, if you will. In other words, we are picking up where we left off. A couple weeks ago, we turned, if you will, to the, the book of Nehemiah uh, as we left off in Ezra. And, and the books of Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they go really close in hand, as we'll see. They kind of pick up from one another. Um, the book of uh, Esther is mixed in, in there. Um, I'm still praying whether we're going to cover the book of Esther or not. Um, I, I know that there's at least uh, 13 chapters here, so at least gives me 13 weeks to be praying as to which direction we're going to go um, in that. But um, we'll see. We'll see what, what God does. And so let me say, set the stage a little bit as we're opening up this new book. Um, and, and then we're going to read all of Nehemiah chapter 1. It's, it's not a long, long chapter, but it's a powerful, powerful chapter. We are in what is called the post-exile period. Um, if you've been with us in the, the book of Ezra, we kind of covered that a while back. Um, but this is where we're at. We're in the post-exile books that were written. Um, the books were written... Um, these were Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and 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 these are the the concluded the conclusion of the historical books that are found in present canonical order. And this is the way they are in order, which is interesting though, because Ezra is not in order. Ezra is probably somewhere in the middle of those two books, but be that as it may, this is the way it's in our canon here in our Bible. Um, these three books cover from 538 B.C. to about 430 B.C. <clears throat> and it goes right before the 400 years where the Lord goes silent with the children of Israel. And so from this time period that we're looking at, if there's only a few years left couple decades left and the Lord goes silent. And he goes silent until the time Jesus Christ is born. And, and uh, John the Baptist, and when John the Baptist comes on the scene, the Lord begins to move once again. And so uh, these post-exile prophets that come on the scene here after the, uh, the, the captivity would be Haggai and Zechariah. And Zechariah and Haggai, they were written right around the time of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. If you were with us in, in chapter 4, I think it was, or chapter 5 of Ezra, we see these guys coming on the scene. And so these are the guys that come in around that time period in about 520 B.C. And then we have Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Bible before we, we close off the Old Testament and you have that time period. And Malachi, he will write his book at the end of Nehemiah's time. A few years after him probably, um, which would be around 430 B.C. Now, the time frame for the book of Nehemiah that we are in, that we will be starting, is about 444 B.C. I know I'm giving you a lot of numbers. I love these numbers. I know you're probably going, Zeke, Zeke, you're losing me with these numbers. But they are interesting if you had the timelines. Um, and uh, you can find timelines on Google. Um, but um, again, it's about 440 B.C. that Nehemiah comes on the scene. And it is about 12 years after the book of Ezra was written. Now, Ezra does have a cameo role in the book of Nehemiah. A little theater lingo, if you will. In chapters 8 and chapters 12, he comes on the scene. And if you remember when we were going through Ezra, I told you that he was a young man when he came on the scene. And he was. He was in his early 
20s. And when he comes and makes this cameo role um, in, in the book of Ezra or the book of Nehemiah, he is about 36 years old when he does that. The interesting thing about Ezra is that he only lives to be 40. And so four years after this, he comes on the scene here and what we will be covering, he's done. The main focus or theme of the book of Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the wall, the walls of Jerusalem, which kind of started when Ezra was on the scene. If you remember back in chapter four of Ezra, there's this big old parentheses that happens and it takes us from from a time when they're starting to rebuild uh, uh, the altar and the temple or the the foundation and then it takes us all the way to this time frame and it talks about the time when Ezra started kind of building this wall and even before he starts or he, he starts you know bringing in all this the stuff to, to reposition everything that's going on with the temple, but the walls are down. And the walls have been torn down since Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed them all in 580, uh, around 580 BC. And they have never been rebuilt. And so in, when Ezra is there, he wants to, but there's a decree that has happened that brought it all to a halt. And so the king was petitioned and he granted a stay that the rebuilding of the wall could not continue. And so this kind of brings us to Nehemiah chapter 1. And it says, Nehemiah, uh, the, the words of Nehemiah, the, the son of uh, Hekeliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20. In the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, the Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who were left, who are left from the captivity in the province, are in uh, great distress and reproach. The wall of, the, of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these things that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven or before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray Lord God of heaven. O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, And keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the furthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand, O Lord, I pray, let me let your ear be attentive to my prayer, to the prayer of my of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servants prosper your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, 
for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, as we go and, and, and start this book, this book is an interesting book because many people, uh, many churches will, will, bring, will be a, bring this book into their uh, congregation when there's often a time of rebuilding that's going on in their body, when they're starting something new, something fresh. Nehemiah is one of those books because it talks about the rebuilding. And it's interesting because, again, Ezra and Nehemiah both have this tendency to talk about rebuilding because that's what God had called them to do. Again, years apart, different time periods, coming from two different places that they were up north and coming to Jerusalem, God had called them for specific purposes. Uh, Ezra was not called to really rebuild Jerusalem. He was called to come and reinstitute the, the worship of the people, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they were the ones that were instituted to come and rebuild the altar, the foundation, and the temple itself. Whereas Nehemiah focuses more on the walls that surround Jerusalem. The temple's already erected, things have already been going on, and his heart is for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which is key with Nehemiah. Because as we go on, we will see how key it is that the, the proclamation to rebuild the walls or Jerusalem are different than rebuilding the temple. And the, the, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem are vital in, in, in the prophecy that Daniel had prophesied early on when he was in captivity. And so it's very uh, important that we understand that this book... When this proclamation goes out, it's vital for the time that Messiah would end up showing up um, in Jerusalem. And so, not much is known about Nehemiah. We don't know a lot about his childhood. We don't know a, a lot about his youth and or his family background. Except that we have his father's name, which is Hekeliah. And then we have one of his brothers named Hananiah, Hanani. and um, and he is mentioned in verse two. And but we'll see a little later that it's actually his brother. Now it is a possibility that Nehemiah's great grandparents were taken in, into captivity when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians back, starting in six o five to to 586 B.C. It was three different deportations that happened, and, and it is quite possible that it was his grandparents that lived in that place. And so again, he's probably removed by a couple generations, but I could guarantee you he heard all the stories that were passed down from the time that his great-grandparents lived in Jerusalem and the desire that he would have to one day go back to that place. We also don't know Nehemiah's age. And I don't know how you picture some of these guys when, when you're reading about them. Um, Nehemiah is one of those guys that, that I don't picture to be all that old. Um, more than likely, he was probably born in that time gap of 57 years that happened in the book of Ezra. Again, all of this is just speculation on my part. As I'm looking at this, as I'm studying this, I'm a, as I'm looking at numbers, at, 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 at you know, probabilities of this age, that age, that age, I'm, I'm looking at all these probabilities because one of the, one of the, the uh, guys from, from one of the commentaries I was reading, he said, yeah, he was probably born around the time of Zerubbabel, which would make him close to about 90 years old at this time, which I doubt. And so, again, when you're reading other commentaries, you really have to take into account, well, maybe that's, that's their, their speculation, just like I'm giving it to you. This is my speculation of where it's at, um, the way I'm looking at this. Given the fact that, that this is taking place in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, um, who reigned from, six, or from 464 to four. 24. He reigns for 20 years, and we are in the middle of his reign. And this book is taking place right there, right in the middle, somewhere about 445 to 444 B.C. 
So as I'm looking at all those numbers, I'm thinking, Nehemiah cannot be past the age of 35. Why 35, you ask? I don't know. I just kind of threw out a number out there. But in reality, I was looking at his time frame. If he is about 35 years old, and he is part of this king's court, being the the cupbearer, he would return in 12 years for a certain days, it says, for certain days, and then he would return two years after that for good to come back to the king, which would make him 49 years old, almost 50 years old. And so, again, only speculation here that Nehemiah was probably in his early to mid-twenties when all of this is taking place because if, in fact, he returns to his old job that he leaves as a cupbearer, he is still going to be young enough to be around the king's court. And I say that because we know from Daniel that when they were taken into captivity and they were being trained and educated in other lifestyles, they were looking for those who were young, those who were educated, those who were being trained in in all of this stuff um, to understand. And if they were easy on the eyes, handsome... It was a plus. And so I don't know if they would want a 49, 50-year-old hanging around the king all the time. They probably were looking for someone younger. And again, this is just from reading the past and looking and saying, okay, if he goes back and he is in his early 20s, then he could probably be in his mid-30s somewhere and still be viable to be the king's cup bearer. All of that is speculation, peeps. But when I look at Nehemiah, I don't look at an older guy. I look at a younger guy who's vibrant, who is ready to go, who is is ready to take on the world given a chance. Not that older people can't. I'm still ready to take on most of the world. Not all the world, but most of it. I'm almost hitting 60, and so I've slowed down just a little bit, but I'm still trying to outrun those two whippersnappers that that hang around here, Pastor Daniel and Pastor Jacob. I still try to run circles around them if I can, but I understand my limitations, and a man's got to know his limitations. Now, we don't know which city he was born in. But he was born in Persia. And it would be after that captivity that he was born. Because again, it is at this time, it has been almost a hundred years since the 70 year captivity was up. Back in, oh gosh, I didn't write this down. But it's 500, 530 something or 15. Somewhere around there. So again, there's been a long time that has been going on. And so again, he was probably born in that time frame where they, they were allowed to come back already, but his family decided to stay in Persia. They are in the city of Shushan or Susa, which is the same place where Esther's story takes place, but he is a lot younger than Esther would have been. And so... So this is the winter palace of the king, of the kings of Persia. And so they are up in what is today modern-day Iran, which Shushan was one of the capital cities for the Persian Empire. So this whole conversation is taking place in the month of Kislev, which is our December, November, December months. So it was probably a lot warmer in that climate. So that's where they would go into the winter palace. And so that's where all this conversation is taking place. That is verse 1. Verse 2, it says that Hanani, his brother, one of his brethren, came uh, with the men of Judah and he asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped. Hananah is, is more than just one of the brethren, one of among all the Jews, because in chapter 7, verse 2, uh, Nehemiah calls Hananah my brother, uh, speaking of him being his biological 
brother. He had just got back from Judea or Judah. Now, from Shushan down to Judah is about a thousand miles. So these guys have been traveling for a while. Um, now, we don't know if Hananut lived down there or he was just gone down to visit and came back. We're, we're not quite sure. But be that as it may, he had gone down there and not only visited the region, but particularly, specifically, he was in Jerusalem. And so when he comes back, Nehemiah asks him about the situation there. Now, it's interesting because was this just a casual greeting after someone has gotten back from a trip? Hey, how was your trip? How was the experience? How is everything going down there? More than likely, Nehemiah had never been there, perhaps because of his job being the cupbearer and all that it was an important job. For whatever reason, it seems like Nehemiah had not ever been down to Jerusalem, but he had a great concern for all that was going on down there. And so what I find interesting is that we have casual greetings that ask a question. And we're not always interested in hearing the real answer or a genuine answer. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how are you doing? (laughs) What's going on? We really don't want to sit and chat. We're just asking, hey, how's it going? Good, good, good. Okay. You know, we really don't want to go, hey, well, do you really want to know? Because if you really want to know, i got to tell you what's going on in my life right now. And you kind of look at them like, "Um, I wasn't expecting all that. (laughs) I have a bad habit if somebody asks me, hey, how's it going? Man, let me tell you my week. And people are going, oh, shoot, Pastor Zeke's about to start talking. And that guy can talk and talk and talk. And you're looking at, like, how do I get out of this situation? So when you ask me, how's it it going, be careful because I might just ask you. And so I'm really careful when I ask somebody because I want to be genuine when I'm asking, hey, how are you doing? I want to look at you and I want to hear all about it. Unless I'm in a hurry. eh? It's like, hey, what's up? Boom. I don't even want to really know what's up. I'm just on my way. So, I don't know if that's the greeting that Nehemiah has given him here. But it does seem that Nehemiah's greeting is real and genuine, and he really wants to know. And he expects to hear the real and genuine response from his brother. And that is what we have in verse 3. In verse 3, his brother responds to him by telling him the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province that are there in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, I don't know how long it took him to share that if this is just a concise answer of what was going on. interesting because the king that Nehemiah is serving right now, Artaxerxes, was the one that had put a stop to the rebuilding of the wall. In the beginning of his reign, it says in chapter 4 of Ezra. About 20 years earlier, when they had a, a heart to rebuild the walls, Artaxerxes, because other people were complaining, people that lived around there that had been exiled to that place, that had been there for hundreds of years now, a couple hundred years at least, they were not wanting the people of Israel that were headed back to start building the wall. They actually came and approached them and say, hey, these people, you got to be careful with them because they really want to rebuild this wall. They're already rebuilding the temple and all, but if you let them rebuild the wall, you're going to lose them. And so they came at the beginning of his reign and he put a stop to the building of the wall. Now Nehemiah is working for that man. He is close to that man. Even though that same king, Artaxerxes, had given Ezra all kinds of authority when he sent him back to to build the temple, He never mentions the wall of Jerusalem, and Ezra didn't either. 
of saying, hey, can I go proceed with this? Nothing was ever done. And so the walls were left in rubble for the most part. Some parts were, were up, some parts were down, as we'll see. But Ezra had left Jerusalem in 456 B.C. And as we have learned uh, in our final studies in the book of Ezra, the people were getting back on track in, in not only in their worship, but in their following after the Lord and the things of the Lord. He had placed things back. He had reformed their worship. And so things were back on track. And it's not to say that they had veered off and they were now back to worshiping other idols or anything like that. They had not continued to grow in the things of the Lord. In the things that had started uh, before, 12 years later since Ezra has left, the city is great in great distress and reproach, which means that they were greatly troubled and disgraced. Perhaps because there was no defense for them. The people were now gathering. They had their temple. They had their community going. They had all these things going, but they were open to attack and defeat. And it is quite possible this caused their eyes to be taken off the Lord and onto the situations that they might be potentially um, open to. Because it never says that they had gotten attacked in any way, shape, or form. But they were open to the circumstances. So it's quite possible that they had taken their eyes off the Lord and onto the circumstances. And that is why they are troubled and disgraced or reproached. Not much has been happening with them. And so within 12 years of Ezra being gone, and now this news coming from Jerusalem that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down <clears throat> and the gates are burnt with fire, it is quite possible that they could not do much to continue on, to grow, because they're troubled and dis disgraced or reproached. But the fact of the matter is the walls are broken down. They're in an interesting place that they can't seem to function the way they should be. And it's interesting is that right there at that time, we, we hear that right off the bat, we know that, that something could have been done, but nothing had been getting done by the people. In other words, it was hard for them to move on, to, to fix what was around them. It, it's, it's interesting because there are times when you hear something, you hear about something. And, and right off the bat, you know that nothing can be done. I, I, I don't know if, if, if issues come your way on a regular basis, but, but things come up and, and people, you know, they, they tell you what's happening and right off the bat you're going, this is bigger than all of us. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that can be done. Even if we throw money at it or we throw time at it, there's nothing that can be done at this time. And, and so there's times like that, even in our own lives. And then there are other times when you hear about an issue and you cannot shake it. And as much as you try to shake it, and as much as you try to talk yourself out of it, somehow it makes it into your heart. And then you feel like you're the one that has to take care of the situation. And it could be bigger than, than anything you could ever imagine. And this is where I feel that Nehemiah is in this place where he asks the question because he is truly concerned about the people in Jerusalem. Hey, what's going on there? What is happening? And he says, well, the people, this is what's going on with the people in general, but this is what's going on with the city particularly, is that it is broken down, the walls are broken down, and the gates are burned. And for some reason, he feels that he is the one that should act on this. The people of Israel 
whether they were in Israel or away from Israel, they had a heart for Israel all the time. Throughout the Psalms, we hear of how beautiful are the gates, how, how lovely are these things. And how lovely, I mean, their heart was for Jerusalem. And even though this young man has never seen this place, he had a heart for Jerusalem. And when he heard about this, he was just tore up about it. And verse 4 tells us, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven. Now, I, I don't know if this truly, truly surprised Nehemiah. I, I, I kind of... As I'm looking at this, I'm going, how is it that he had never heard that, the situation that was going on? Because it seems like he is totally taken aback, and perhaps he had never heard from anyone this close, like a brother that comes in and says, no, really, bro, you should see what's going on. I know we've heard about stuff, but I've seen it with my own eyes. And it is in dis dis despair. But he was so moved by all of this that he couldn't shake it. It seemed like he couldn't even stand up anymore. He had to sit down. And it's as, as if he cannot hold back his emotions. The news of what's going on in Jerusalem is so overwhelming that it stopped him right in his tracks. And, and this is one of those situations where, again, you see this young man's heart and you see his concern. Because it's interesting, he has, he has it all right now. He's a young man, he's living in the lap of luxury. Even though he is the cupbearer for the, the king, which means that he is the taste tester of the wine to make sure nobody wants to poison him, you almost kind of wonder, it's like, man, if somebody's distraught and somebody sends him a bottle of wine, man, it's like, oh. But, but again, for, for whatever time he's been with this guy, it's been a lucrative business here because he is right next to the king. He has a king's ear all the time. Whenever this cat's going to sit down and eat or anybody or drink or anything, he is taste, testing everything. And so this guy could easily have said, man, oh man, that sounds horrible. Sucks for them. I got to go back into the palace <laughs> and be with the king and live in the lap of luxury. This guy was so moved by what was going on. And again, now he is made aware of it. Now understand that this did not happen overnight, this, this stuff in Israel. Or it didn't happen in the space of a, a day or, or, or a few weeks. This has been going on for quite a while. And for some reason, Nehemiah had never been aware of it like this time. Maybe perhaps he was, but this time it just rocked him. And he could not shake this thing. Had it been because he had, he had been separated from his people for so long? I don't know. Was it because he, he was living in, in the palace and he really didn't have anything out there because he had been getting groomed and, and all that to be the cupbearer? Or as the cupbearer, was he not allowed to hear what was going on in the outside world? We, we, we don't know exactly. Maybe, maybe he was kept from all those personal matters because the king didn't want this guy to carry anything in to his presence that would bum out the king. But what's amazing here is that other people, Jewish people, knew about what was going on in Jerusalem. And they never did anything about this. For 12 years at least, this is the way it's been going on. The amazing part about it is the people that actually lived there in Jerusalem knew that the, these walls were torn down and they never did anything for all this time. They just lived with that. And, and isn't that amazing sometimes that, that there are people who are living in a, in a situation where, where, again, you're going, you can get yourself out of it, man. Start picking up these rocks. Start piling them up. Start doing all these things. They're going, eh, it's been like that for a while. Man, it's no big deal. 
And I think that can happen in our Christian lives. That we settle for what's around us. The circumstances, ah, that's just the way it is. And yet God's going, man, if you could just build these walls. And maybe they never even thought about it. I can't imagine how they hadn't. They had, the, the, the temple had been built. They probably knew, somebody knew that there was a decree to stop the wall from being built. And maybe they're going, oh, why fight the system? Instead of going, this is not right, man. We need to approach the king, once again, the governor, whoever it is, to get the thing going. But it seemed like nobody was really concerned about it until this young man hears about it. It's interesting because we saw Ezra do something when back in the situation when he was in, he heard about what was going on and he went and he did something about it. And now we have this, this other man who has been called for this purpose to go do the job. And I know that people will say, well, maybe I'm just not called to act upon certain situations. And I totally get that. Not everybody is called to do everything. But I could guarantee you in our lives, in our Christian lives, we have seen or heard something that the, God, that the Lord tugged on our hearts and says, you're the one to take care of this. And you're going, not on your life. I rebuke that thought, Lord. Please, not me. Let somebody else take care of that that's more qualified. And God's going, man, I've been wanting to use you in such a powerful way, but you never give yourself time. And, and, and so oftentimes we just go like, you know what? It's always been like this. This is who I am. I never need to move up or move away or move this or do that. And, and so, again, I just feel like there, there was these issues that were going on and people just let it happen and continue. And it just continued the way it was going. And I understand that, that there has to be the right time, the right place, and the right person for every situation. And maybe this was just the right time, place, and person. It was Nehemiah. The Lord had brought it to him, and it was him who was supposed to take this on. And so upon receiving this, this news, Nehemiah, says he sat down and wept for a number of days. He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed to the God of heaven. I, I love the fact that Nehemiah, as we'll see, he is a go-getter. He, he is someone who's ready to rock and roll. He's ready to go and move things and shake things and get things done. But before he does any of that, before he moves and shakes the world, he has to sit and weep first. Before anything happens, he is going to seek the Lord. Lord, what do I do with this? Why did you bring this now into my life? Because he could have easily said, Lord, I have a sweet gig going on right now. Man, oh man, I am like moving up in ranks, you know. I can't even take off because there's no other cupbearer that wants to do this job. And I am the best at this thing, man. The king and I, man, we've become so close. There's no way I want to leave to do any of this. But he doesn't do any of that. When he hears what's going on, he sits and he prays before he does anything. But there is a mourning. There is a weeping that's happening in his life because all of a sudden it hurts deep down inside. And he can't shake it. And it says that he, he mourned for many days. And it would be in those many days, day and night basically, that he is fasting as well. That he is depriving himself of whatever luxuries he could have had that he has just put that away for right now. Now even though fasting was not a requirement in the law except for the Day of Atonement, fasting was an evidence that something was, was going on. He was distraught and he just needed to, to say no to everything and just sit before the Lord and just put his eyes and his heart on the Lord and do nothing else. And so before he acts, he fasts. Before he acts, he prays. 
Before he does anything, he is at the Lord's feet asking for direction. And so now we hear a prayer. And there's about nine different times throughout the book of Nehemiah that we hear him pray or acknowledge the Lord, which is an important thing for us (laughs) to read, that the book of Nehemiah is a book of prayer as well. And he begins by saying, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and and observe your commandments. And so he acknowledges who he is praying to. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the one that sits on the throne. You are the one that oversees it all. You are the one that is awesome, that is awestruck, you know. You are the one that that covers all of it, Lord. And you are the one that keeps covenant. He knew. He knew what the, the Word of God had said to Moses, he knew all of that. And he knew that he, that, that he was praying to a God who keeps his covenant. And he has mercy. He, he, he gives what we don't deserve. He understands that and he acknowledges that. He doesn't come right off the bat and say, here's my shopping list. Here's what you got to do for me. And as soon as you do those things, I will act. He doesn't do that. He acknowledges God. And he basically bows down and he stays down, acknowledging his greatness, his his promises, his mercy to those who love him and those who observe his commandments. And he says, please let your ear be attentive and your eye open and you hear my or hear the prayer. Now, God is spirit. And I don't know what he looks like. And I don't know if he has ears or he has eyes. But he's telling them, Lord, however you hear, please hear my prayer. However you see, Lord, see what I'm going through right now. Open your eyes to to this plight that I am in. I will pray before you day and night. In other words, I will continually be acknowledging you in the way I should go. And I will confess the sins. The sins of the people, the children of Israel. And, he, and, and I love this part, before uh, which we have sinned against you. Again, he doesn't use the word they. He says we. Even though he wasn't even involved. He's never been over there. He has no clue what the walls look like. He has no clue how everything has been going on down there. But he includes himself. Both my father's house and I have sinned. And we have acted uh, very corruptly against you. And have not kept your commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Again, he knew what God had said to his servant Moses. And then in verse 8, he says, remember. Remember, O Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish the Lord had the ability to forget. (laughs) Does not have that ability to forget. But he prays and says, Lord, you remember the commandments of your servant Moses. Saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And, and he's quoting the, the curses that would come to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 28. That if they turn, if they do not obey, here's all the curses that will fall upon you. Earlier in 28, he says, here's all the promises. Here's here's all the blessings. If you keep what I tell you, here's all the curses. And he reminds them about the curses that he said, if they are not faithful, I will scatter all the nations. And then he quotes to him, and he says, remember Deuteronomy 30, Lord. 
that if we return to you, if we, you, we returned and keep your commandments and do them, even though if you have scattered us throughout all the world, you will bring us back. And that is what's been happening. He's been bringing people back to the place where his name dwelt. And the place where his name dwelt was desolate. Well, not desolate. The people were there, but everything was just falling apart. Sorry. It says so in verse 10. Now these are your people, or your servants, your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah, even though he had never been to Jerusalem, he never forgot the God of his fathers. He never forgot the stories that, that he was told by them. He understood what God's word said. It doesn't tell us that he was a priest or anything of the sort, but he knew the word of God. And he knew the promises and he knew the cursings that would come to those who would obey and those who would disobey. And in his prayer, as he acknowledges his greatness and who he is, he reminds him of saying, I know what your word says, that when we are faithful, you scatter us. And when we return to you, you gather us back in. That is his mercy. That is his mercy. That is his faithfulness to his people. Reminding them that you have brought us back to where your name dwells. And so he acknowledged his great power and his strong hand. And he finishes off this prayer in verse 11 saying, Oh Lord, I pray. (laughs) Please let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant. and, And to the prayers of your servants whom desire to fear your name. And he says this, and let your servant prosper this day. Let him find favor this day, I pray. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And he's talking about the king. Now, I don't know if it was his day off, his weekend off, that that he had time to, to, to fast and pray, but now it would be time to be before the king. And he is saying, Lord, grant me favor before this man. Because the Lord had laid something on his heart that was heavy. And as we will see, he's not going to be able to hide that very good. (laughs) For he was the king's cupbearer. Again, he was in a place of prominence, if you will. Again, if if this man is young, he had been prepared for this time. To be in the presence of the king. The same king that had halted the rebuilding of the temple or the rebuilding of the wall 20 years earlier. But now it was time to confront the king once again and said, King, this is what's going on right now in my life. It's a dangerous situation for him. And he can't hide his emotions as we will see next week. But he is open to talk to the king about what's going on with the plight of his people. His heart is broken for the people. I guess I want want to throw this out before we close up. When the Lord brings something across in your life, I know that there are times when you can't do a thing about it, and I understand that. But there has ever has there ever been a time that the Lord has brought something before you and it has just rocked you and you can't get away from it? What do you do with that? Do you act right away? Or do you take your time to seek the Lord? You see, it's easy when you see an an issue and you say, I can go fix that. And maybe God's going, you're not the one right now. It's not the right time, place, and you're not the person. There's times for that. And there's times when you're going, Lord, I know I'm the right person, but it's not the right time. 
it's not the right place. And so those are the times, guys, that when the Lord brings things into our hearts, into our lives, again, we cannot fix everything. I understand that. But there are times that the Lord has laid things on our hearts and said, you're the one. But I need you to rest in my presence before it's the right time to go. Because oftentimes we jump and then we say, Lord, are you going to take care of it? <laughs> and God's going, should have just waited before. I would have pushed you off. But we jump oftentimes. And so we need to be careful with that. We see this young man who is ready to go, but before he goes, he bows down. And that's where we need to be. Always, guys. I don't care how dire the, str- the, the thing is in front of you. Oftentimes, God says, you need to be in my presence first and foremost. And if you have time, fast. Fast and pray. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this book, Lord. I pray that you would help me in in studying it. Lord, I don't mean to always speculate in some of the things, Lord God, but Father, it's so intriguing when we begin to see, Lord God, some of these situations. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would just help us as we dive into this book, that, Lord, you would convict our hearts in the things that you have called us to, that we have been disobedient to, that we've run away from. Lord, there are things in our lives and in our, our, our hearts, Lord God, that you've been dealing with for years. And we've been disobedient, Lord. Lord, I pray that tonight, Lord, you would draw us to your to our knees and to a place, Lord God, where it just penetrates our heart that we can't shake it no more. And so deal with us in those those issues, Lord. Help me as the pastor here with situations that arise. Lord, so many good opportunities, Lord God, but Father, I want to know that you're leading and guiding before anything, Lord. And so help me, Lord, as I pastor this place, Lord. Thank you so much for your, for your faithfulness, Lord, for your mercy, for your promises. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's